Heavenly Father, lead us through these uh, last few chapters of Ezekiel, Father. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity it has been to study it. I remember as I started it a while back, Father, that many were questioning why we would study this book and how so many had said they'd never studied it and wondered uh, why. And now, Father, as we finish it, it seems just so sensible and so approachable. We wonder why any part of your word, Father, would be ruled out by anybody. So thank you, Father, for the chance to learn it and to study it consistently and to finish it. But make sure we do something with it, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, back into the study of this fascinating, probably mysterious, detailed account of the Millennial Temple and the sacrificial system. Last week we did the visual tour of the temple grounds. And in that tour, you remember, we learned that the building that the Kingdom Temple consists of, its, its grounds and all the rest, is quite different than anything that's been on earth before. Certainly different than the preceding temples in Israel's history. You had the mountain, you had the courts, the buildings, they were all huge. There's a representation of it from last week, if you remember. And even that outer barrier that we talked about at the very end last week is over a mile square. So quite a large structure. In the next section we're doing tonight, the Lord shows the prophet how this building is going to be used, at least in part. There's more coming. It's the sacrificial system. That goes all the way to the end of 46. We're not going that far tonight. Now, for anyone who is not intimately familiar with the Mosaic sacrificial system then the kingdom system is probably going to look like just more of the same to you. But those two systems are actually quite different in the detail. And what that means to us is not that we have to understand those differences necessarily point for point. In general, though, this is a new system. And that's what matters most to us theologically, because what it's saying is this is not a continuation of the Mosaic Law, which affirms New Testament theology that the law, the law given through Moses, came to an end in Christ. Right? So that's important. We need to understand that so that nothing we're seeing here seems to creep back into a thought that, well, God still wants that mosaic system running. And some say that. Some say that because this exists in the kingdom, the mosaic system should still be done today, which we know is not true from what the Bible tells us. So nothing we find in Ezekiel contradicts the truth that the mosaic law has been put to rest. However, that does not mean that there is no law. In our age, the law is the law of Christ written on our hearts. And in the future age, there is apparently a kingdom law. And I say apparently because there's no one place you go in the Bible that spells out the kingdom law. It's simply implied by the fact that there is a system here that's reflected, that must have been codified, must have been given by God. It is given here to an extent in Ezekiel. And it's going to be followed. So that's a law. So in effect, because there's sinners in that age, there's a law of a sacrifice in that age. Now before we look at the system... We need to revisit some things from last week. So let's revisit our chart. And this chart, remember from the beginning of chapters 33 and onward, gave us the outline of how all of these chapters are coming together in a larger storyline, if you will, a larger conversation. And we're at the last piece of this, 40 through 48. This is where God explains to Ezekiel how his glory will dwell among his people Israel. It's the second half of a last piece, the last piece of these two. You know, the colors indicate the fact that these are paired up. So in chapter 39, you had the the moment in which God shows to the Gentiles that he is, in fact, the God of Israel dwelling among Israel. Uh, Only he shows it to them in a very negative sense. That is, he defends Israel against the invasion of a bunch of Gentile aggressors at the end of that war we studied. And it said in chapter 39, that was his way of demonstrating to the Gentile nations that he is the God of Israel and he dwells in Israel. 
What's the way he shows Israel that he is their God and he dwells among them? Well, it's the temple. It's all of what goes on in the temple on a regular basis. So that's what we're about to study now. And obviously, if God is going to dwell with his people in Israel, he has to have an elaborate home. And the tabernacle and the later the first temple that God had with Solomon, those were buildings that were elaborate, certainly for their day to a certain extent. And they were the place God chose to dwell for that period of history and among his people. And he dwelled there by entering in as the Shekinah glory, the visible glory of God. And he remained in the place within those buildings called the Holy of Holies, or sometimes called the Most Holy Place. He remained there for centuries, first in the tabernacle, later in Solomon's temple. And he remained there even though Israel was committing many abominations right outside the door. And then at the end of chapter 11 in this book, we saw in chapter 11, 10 and 11, the glory of the God of Israel, who up to that point had been dwelling in Solomon's temple for some extended period of time, hundreds and hundreds of years. At chapter 11 in this book, he departed. And there was a two-chapter series there in which he was departing in stages. First out of the Holy of Holies into the Holy Place, out of the Holy Place to the threshold, threshold to the gate of the court, up on top of the East Gate, then to the Mount of Olives. All of that happened around 600 B.C., right before Nebuchadnezzar's third and final invasion of the city and destruction of the temple and destruction of the wall, etc. So up until that point, the Lord's glory had been there. Then he's gone, and in every age since, and in all existing temples since, God's glory has never returned. He won't return. He won't return to the one that's going to be built in the tribulation, certainly. Because all is well with Israel and the Lord in the kingdom period, he will dwell with them again in the kingdom period. And so he has to take up residence in his temple again. And so what we start with tonight, in the first half of 43, is the glorious return of the glory of God into his house to dwell. And his return will remind us a little of the way he departed. So starting in chapter 43, verse 1. It says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kebar, and I fell on my face. Ezekiel, it says, is taken by his angelic escort, the same one we saw last week, now to the east gate or the outer wall of the temple compound. So he's going back to the open east gate where it all started for us last week, where he first walked in. So he's going to this gate. Remember, there's an outer wall, and then there's an inner wall, there's an outer court, and there's an inner court. Remember that? So he's going to this gate, the one that is the main exit, if you will, for the main entrance to the whole of the temple facility. We remember that was the last place, by the way, in the old temple, that was the last place that the glory of God was seen. Remember, it was seen over on a mountain here, having just moved from the top of the east gate to the mountains east of the city of Jerusalem. That's the last place that we hear that the glory of God rests before it's gone. That was back in chapter 11. So the last place we saw the glory was on the top of the Mount of Olives, east of the city, after it had gone from the east gate. Okay, And if you notice that as Ezekiel looks... At, in fact, let me take you to Ezekiel 11. Just I'll read this little piece to you. In Ezekiel 11:22, here's how it left. It says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them, that is, over the cherubim. 
And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I'd seen left me. So what we're seeing now is the glory of the Lord returning, beginning at the same point at which it was last seen leaving in Israel. The difference in time between these two moments, though, consider you have the 600 years until Christ, you have the 2,000 years that have happened since, some unknown number of years yet to go, and then we reach this point at the beginning of the 1,000 years. So we're, we're still, the clock's still ticking to get to this moment, but we're still waiting for this to happen, obviously. Notice in what we read in 43, though, the cherubim are not reported as being present now at the return of the glory of God, though they were there to escort the glory of God out. And that's what cherubim do. Remember, cherub, a cherub is a protector of God's glory. That's its job. So the absence of a cherub here indicates that the Lord's glory is not under threat of any diminishment. So and that's obvious because the circumstances have changed dramatically from the day he left to the day he returns. And then also, notice how he begins to describe the appearance. I want This is an area I want us to focus on for a little, a little bit. I want you to focus on the appearance of the glory of God, beginning with the sound of of his voice. It says the sound of his voice is like that of many waters. So if you've been to Niagara Falls, perhaps, if you hear the sound as you're standing near the falls, that's the sound of his voice, this roar, uh, like water charging through a canyon in a, in a flood or something, communicating immense power. All right? And then in verse 3, he says his appearance visually is the same as what Ezekiel saw back when he destroyed the city. That was at an earlier point in the book. And then he also says back at the river Kebar. That's back to chapter 1. That's back to the beginning of the book. Let me just read you what he saw in chapter 1 as a reference. Ezekiel one twenty six. He says, Now above the expanse that was over their heads, speaking of the cherubim, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man, and then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of that surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. So that's the first experience Ezekiel had with the glory of God. It's a Radiant, fire-filled, powerful rainbow moment. Right? All right. Ezekiel says, now the glory that we're watching come back into the temple looks just like that. It's the same thing. In effect, it has the same power because Ezekiel falls to his face again. It's, it's almost reflexive. It doesn't seem like he can avoid it. Right? Now, what we're learning is that this is obviously not a description of the Jesus that we know from the Gospels, the one who existed in Galilee in the first century. So as a result, you might be tempted to assume, well, this is the appearance of God's glory in some different member of the Godhead. This is the Father, or this is the Spirit. Well, we have to rule that out so that we understand what we're really seeing. And Scripture makes it clear that is not the case. First, and here's where you're going to flip a little if you want to follow me, uh, in Psalm 110, the Scripture tells us that the one who rules and reigns over the kingdom is going to be the second person of the Godhead and not the Father. So Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, that passage describes our Lord ruling over his enemies in a kingdom of his power. That is a clear reference to the coming kingdom. The Father is the one, it says, putting our Lord into that role, allowing him to rule over his enemies. And he adds, when speaking to his appointed ruler, the Father says, you will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that is an unmistakable reference to Christ according to the New Testament author of Hebrews. Right? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, obviously a reference to Jesus, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, so there we have a direct cross-reference. The writer of Hebrews is saying that, that mention in Psalms 110 is about the one who descended from Judah, not from the lot, tribe of Levi. All right? Well, that's connecting all the dots for us there without any question. We're talking about Jesus. He will be the one who rules. He will be the one who's on the seed of David. He will be the one in the temple. He will be the one who has the power and glory of the age. Not the Father, not the Spirit. All right? So the member of the Godhead ruling is Jesus... And so we must conclude then that the glory of God that is now descending and entering into the temple, the one that Ezekiel describes as a rainbow radiant firestorm, is Jesus. And that conclusion is further affirmed by the two descriptions we have of Jesus in the New Testament when he appears in his glory. And these are a couple of passages. One is in Revelation 1. If you want to watch that with or read that with me. Chapter 1, verse 9. And in chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation, John writing says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned... To see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one, like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of a death and Hades. I read the longer section there because there's some pieces all the way through there that tie together. Uh, You see John describing Jesus. How do we know it's Jesus? Because he ends by saying, I was the one who was dead and now alive. Clear reference to resurrection. But look at the other details now. Voice, many waters. Face, glowing like the sun. Feet, on fire, bronze, etc. The point is, this is a picture of Jesus, an image of him, that is perfectly consistent with the one that, that Ezekiel just described. 
and is his resurrected, glorified state. And also, lastly, notice what it did to John. This is the one who was leaning against Christ's bosom at the Last Supper, you know, buddy-buddy. And he's so afraid of Jesus, he can't look up. He's like a dead man. All right? So it's not as though Jesus is just putting on a show in one moment or another. It appears, by all accounts, to be the image of Christ in his glorified state. You have one other little snippet, one other little moment that confirms this. And what would that moment be, do you think? Transfiguration. I'm talking a New Testament clear reference to Christ, right? So in Matthew, this is what we hear in Matthew 17, 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And look at the description. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now, the description of him stops there, but there's no reason to think that there couldn't have been more of the same. They only had a glimpse of him. The whole point of it being called a transfiguration is that it was a preview of coming attractions shown to those men. And and Jesus alluded to it a short time earlier when he said, what is it to me if they would see the kingdom before they die? And it was really a reference to this oblique moment when they would get a a little snapshot of what he looks like. Okay, So, what we learn is the glory of God returning to reside in the temple for the duration of the kingdom is Jesus. And now we'll go back to verse 4 and let's look at how he walks in, or moves in. It says here, the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, in those two verses, you hear the whole movement of the Spirit from outside the temple all the way into the Holy of Holies. That was the whole thing right there. But we can take it a little step at a time. Uh, First of all, we should go back to what we saw last week. That's the gate in that outer wall as you see it coming from the outside, right? So remember, there's no steps on the outside, no adornment on the outside, but when you get on the inside of the outer gate, that's where you had the steps and the palm branch pillars on either side, right? Remember why they have the palm branches on the inside of the two walls? So you can find the exit. Remember that? Because it looks the same all the way around. If you can't see the palm branches, you don't know where the exit doors are. So he's coming in through the east gate. This is the one that would face the Mount of Olives today if, it were the, if this building were there today. And as he comes in the east gate, he's coming in just as he left back in chapter 11. However, what's different this time? What's the key difference between what we're seeing here and what happened when he left? Feature-wise, what's the big difference? It may be so obvious, it's too obvious. What's different about his coming in this time versus his leaving last time? Totally different building. Totally different building. Right, and it's too obvious, I guess. It's not about him coming back to the place he left. It's about a whole new building and a whole new place, on a whole new mountain, in a whole new age, but he's coming back. Okay? I mean, like I said, probably too obvious. The scriptures tell us to expect his coming from the east. And you probably knew that. Let me just give you a few examples. Acts chapter 1. So in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has been on the earth for a period of weeks, after his death and resurrection, now he's ready to ascend. And in chapter 1 of Acts, we have his ascension. And right before he ascends, we read this, verse 9. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they, some of the apostles, while they were looking on, and a cloud received Jesus out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So, 
Jesus departed. Now, so that reference there at the very end about they, the apostles left the Mount of Olives, that tells you that the moment that they watched Jesus depart, that's where they were. They were on the Mount of Olives. So anyway, the, uh, this distance is a Sabbath day walk. Down that hill and up the hill is as far as you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. So that's where they were on the Sabbath, on a Sabbath day journey away. So Jesus left from, we don't know where, don't, it's not this peak. That the Catholics put a church there because they said that's where it is. There's, a, there's some pavement with footprints in the pavement like kids do when you put down concrete. That's where Jesus blasted off, they say. That's, that's what Catholics do. So truth is, we don't know where he was. He was somewhere over here when he left. All right. We're told by the angels, the way you see him go is the way he's going to come back. All right, hold that thought. Then in Zechariah, we hear a description of that coming back. It's a future description. It's obviously not happened yet. In Zechariah 14. So in 14, verse 1, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you, speaking to Israel, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move forward toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So the return of Christ will start. This is a, a, a part of the end of tribulation. This is a part of how Christ's second coming plays out. He actually has already been somewhere else even before this moment on earth. Okay? But from the standpoint of Jerusalem, from the standpoint of the Jews in Jerusalem, this will be the way they see Jesus return. And he will land somewhere over here, and then this mountain here will split right here. The valley today goes like this. In that day, a new valley is going to go this way. And they're going to, this part of the mountain is going to move that way, and this part of the mountain is going to move that way, and it's going to create a, a new valley right here so that the inhabitants of the city who are under siege from the Antichrist forces will have an exit route out the back because the Antichrist will be on the west side attacking. All right, that's a, a bit of revelation there for you. But anyway, that's the east entry that we're promised. So the Lord's second coming at the end of this age, again, not at the kingdom yet, but at the end of this age, when he comes again, starts with a series of events that lead to him coming to the city from the east. All right, So he'll walk into the city in that sense from the east, but he's not walking into his temple. He's coming into the city. The temple is not his destination. All right, And now what we hear from Ezekiel is that when that age ends and the new age is set up and the temple is constructed and we're ready to start the kingdom... He will come in yet again now, but this time into an all-new structure, all-new wall, all-new temple, now to come in and reside in the temple. That's a different thing. I went through that for you because you will often find people confusing the two events I just described. They'll hear of Jesus returns through the east gate, and they'll imagine that scene, which is true in a sense, so we don't know what it's going to look like after seven years of tribulation. It's probably not going to look that nice, <laughs> but it's going to be there in some form. And that's the first entry. That's the one Zechariah is talking about. 
But then they'll mix that one up with what we just studied in Ezekiel, which is God walking into his temple. When Jesus comes back at the end of tribulation, he's not coming in to set up his temple. He's coming in to wipe out an Antichrist army. Then there's work to be done before the temple's ready. Then he goes in a second time. And when he comes in the second time, he comes in the way we're seeing him now. By second time, I mean, think of it like a formal entry. The first was a military campaign. This is a parade. This is the after-battle parade celebration. All right. So the Lord enters his temple, verse 4. All right, so what I thought I'd do right now before we move forward in the text is, because you, you paid so much for this class, and I really want you to get your money's worth, we're going to take you on a little walking tour with the, the glory of God as he walks into the temple. Okay? So this is what it looks like. So there he is coming in through the east gate. That's the outer gate to the inner gate, right? And then up the steps of the inner gate and into the court of the inner court, and then up the steps, or past the altar actually, up to the steps of the temple itself, which he would have then go through the temple doorway, into the temple, through the holy place, and then he goes in and he fills the holy of holies. And that's where he's going to stay. This is similar to the way the glory entered the first temple. Okay? In, for example, in Second Chronicles 5, you read about how Solomon's temple was filled. Second Chronicles 5 says, thus, verse 1, Thus all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and all the utensils. He put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Then verse 7, Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, and into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the holy of holies, under the wings of the cherubim. Then, verse 11, when the priests came forth from the holy place, now the holy place was that bigger room, right? For all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions. In unison with trumpeters and singers, they were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music. And when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Right, that's what happened under Solomon. A similar thing, perhaps even more grand, of course, will happen in the time of the temple for the kingdom. So what was not visible? What did you not see in this last piece right here? What's not, yeah, what's not there? The ark, the only thing that should be in there, right? There's only one thing in the Holy of Holies. What was it? The box, right? The Ark of the Covenant. There's no Ark. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 3.15. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord God. They will no longer say, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And it will not come to mind. Nor will they remember it. Nor will they miss it. Nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. For, uh, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. All right, so clearly Jeremiah is talking about the kingdom, but he makes it clear there will not be an ark present, it will not be remembered, it will not be missed, it will not be needed. Why? Well, the ark is intrinsically an artifact of the Mosaic Covenant. Right? It's a reminder of Sinai, it was a container that held the law. It was established for that. Its very design was inherently coming out of the law. That's where it was 
given to Israel, right? Those things have passed away. The covenant is gone. The law given through Moses is gone. Therefore, the ark will not be needed, remembered, or cared about anymore. It's part of the same. Here again, more affirmation from this that the law of Moses does not perpetuate into the kingdom in any form. Once God's glory has filled his house, then we're told the entire mountain on which this temple sits will be protected by smoke and flame, just as the people of Israel were in their Exodus journey. We hear this in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So basically the airspace is a no-fly zone. He puts a cloud there during the day, he puts fire there at night, it's a completely protected canopy over the glory of God. Basically from weather or from sun. In Exodus, God did this for the people of Israel as provision because they had to travel from Egypt through the entirety of the Sinai Peninsula out the other side across the Red Sea and into what is modern-day Saudi Arabia, which is where the real Mount Sinai is. They had to make that whole journey in just seven days. They walked day and night for seven days, nonstop, with a cloud at uh, day to cover them from the heat and fire at night to light the way, and that's how they made it all the way Mount Sinai in just seven days. That journey... They were protected and cared for in that journey by the, by the Shekinah glory of God, by the angel of the Lord, so that they could move, stay awake, have the energy, get there, and take all their possessions in just seven days. That's why we have the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasting seven days. They had seven days they could not make bread until they got there. By the way, if any of that's news to you, you really should take the Exodus study that's online. Anyway, in the kingdom, these things provide a similar kind of provision, only now it's protection from weather and to some degree, I guess you think it, it, presumably it's marking the presence of the Lord in his temple, right? It's marking him and it's, it's, it's amplifying his glory. All right, now, back to a question we covered here a few weeks ago. From this moment now, we have just gone through you know, his entry. We know what he looks like. He's sitting in the Holy of Holies, filling the temple with his glory. Now, under the Mosaic law, only one man could enter that room there, and only once a year. But under the kingdom law, uh, as you'll find later as we read there, any priest could enter this room at any time to minister to the Lord regularly. So what that means is a lot more people, relatively speaking, get to see Jesus in this form in some sense. I'm not sure what looking at it really means. Everyone who's ever tried falls on their face. But the point is there's some exposure to him in that respect. And it's not just Jews in this case, because we'll also find later that Gentiles are priests in this time. So you have Gentile priests There is no high priest. The only high priest is Jesus. So there is no high priest in this age. And therefore, there is contact. However, if you're not a priest, you'll never be in there. And it stands to reason that most people are not priests in this age. And I can't tell you the formula for who gets it and who doesn't, but uh, it's not given, except uh, that it's the sons of Zadok in the case of the Jews. In any event, that leads everyone else to ask, and we've had this question here already, well, does Jesus ever come out once in a while for a coffee, or does he, you know, like a politician, just kind of 
kiss the babies and walk from house to house? And No. The answer comes in the next passage, verse 6. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by their corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost and only the wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. All right, well, this is not as much detail as we might like, but there's enough. And Ezekiel says he hears a voice from the house. The word house here is just a term for the temple. So we know he's talking about the Lord speaking. And the Lord speaks in first person, so we know it's the Lord. And he says, this is my house. This is my throne. And my feet will dwell here and be among the people of Israel. But notice he adds, forever. Notice the Lord is very specific. This place will be the place he dwells forever. And that would strongly suggest to us that the Lord does not get wanderlust after spending a few weeks in that box and decides, you know, I need to get out and get some fresh air. God is not like a man that he should have to do those things, right? He is perfectly content being eternal, sitting there for a thousand years, doing what he does. He doesn't need to take a walk, get a vacation, etc. This will be the location that he dwells forever. Now, in this context, you have to know this about Hebrew or about, I guess you'd say more properly, about Eastern writing, that the word forever has some malleability to it. We think of it as a synonym for eternal, but it isn't always the case. They'll use the term forever in the context of a given period of time. So forever in this age, in other words, forever as long as the kingdom is here. And we know in this case that's what he means, that is he dwells here forever in terms of forever in the kingdom, because the kingdom itself is not forever. The kingdom has a thousand-year limit. Then we move to the eternal order. And in the eternal order, this building doesn't exist, the earth doesn't exist, the universe doesn't exist. It's all replaced. So clearly, when he says forever here, he doesn't mean eternal. He means for the length of the period of time that this is in existence. And so forever has that connotation here. But all the same, it's still telling us, you're not going to see Jesus unless you're a priest. And if you do see him, you're going to see him in this form, and it's going to be quite a shock. Or it's going to have some impact on you. What are you going to see if you die today and you enter into his presence? I can't tell you. But it would seem to me that he'll still have this form even now because in every instance of his appearing since he left earth, that's been the way he's been described. There's no point in scripture following Christ's ascension that he's ever described again in terms that match what he had when he was on the earth in Galilee. That, that seems to have been the end of that period of his existence and he takes a different form going forward. I don't mean a different form in any, any way that you know, suggests something that violates our theology of him. It just means that his appearing to us doesn't have the same form anymore. All right? So you might say, well, I kind of missed that. Well, everybody gets their thing. First century people are probably saying, you know, I kind of wish I could have seen the church age. I would have liked to have known what it was like to have the Spirit indwell me. Right? We, we get that. They got him. You know, somebody else got the temple and the, somebody else got the Red Sea parting. And somebody, you know, there's, everyone's getting something in some sense, right? God has spoken through the prophets and the fathers in many ways and many portions. And, and today he's spoken to us through his son, right? There's this, there's this progressive revelation we all take a part in and we get what we get. But we have the full counsel of God's word to know all of it. And that's something they, they didn't necessarily have. So that's our biggest benefit. 
So, one last thought on that, and then we move on. We know, I told you a moment ago, that this isn't forever. We have Paul testifying what it will be like when this comes to an end, and Jesus no longer needs to be in this Holy of Holies place, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, in the context of a discussion of resurrection, he says in verse 25, For Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. We've talked about this, right? The last enemy that will be abolished will be death. That's after he puts Satan down. And then he says in verse 27, For the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when the Spirit says all things are put in subjection, well, it is evident that the Father is accepted who puts all things in subjection to Christ. So just to be clear, God the Father is never in subjection to Christ. And then lastly, Paul says, when all things are subjected to Christ, well, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the Father who subjected all things to Christ, so that God may be all in all. Well, where does the Son become subjected to the Father? Well, that's in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth, when you see the Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together in the center of the city of the new Jerusalem. And they are the light of the, of the universe. There is no sun because they are literally the light source for the entire universe at that point. All right, so that's a very different experience with God than we have here. So it changes again in the new heavens and new earth. All right. So verse 7, the Lord says, He dwells with Israel differently than he has in the past. They will not defile his house anymore. All of that is a reference, of course, to what happened to kick him out in the first place. Their banishment because of the way they brought in terrible things into the temple and defiled it. When it says there are about dead kings right outside the wall, the threshold, the threshold, it's a euphemistic expression to describe the, the idolatry that was taking place right inside the temple. So their dead kings would be their dead idols, if you will. Uh, their non-living idols. Set up right outside the door, right across the wall. God sitting in one place, idols in another, harlotry right next door. All of this going on around the glory of God. Hard to believe, right? He says, not going to happen in the kingdom. Now, let's turn our attention to the sacrificial system. Now, this is not going to go very deep tonight, and it's not what you think is coming, I assume. So don't be too worried if you're thinking, oh, no, mind-numbing bulls and goats. and No, we're not going to do it that way. Uh, it starts with the altar, which is an interesting piece all its own. The center of worship in this new system is always the altar. And uh, we've discussed key purposes in this system. Anybody who may be new tonight or hasn't been here in the past and heard us talking about why there's a sacrificial system, um, it's just too much tonight. I'll, I'll just tell you, go listen online. We covered that a couple weeks ago. There is a good story behind that, as you know. But now we're just looking at this, the system itself. Let's just go to verse 10. And I'll show you where we're going. Verse 10, it says, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structures, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, all its laws, and write it in their sight, so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes, and do them. This is a preface. I love this, though, because God sets up the reason why we're doing this. The whole reason we went into this part of the study, I think, the whole reason the book exists, right? That the grandeur and the magnificence of what God is telling Israel he's prepared to do for them in the form of this temple, in their new kingdom, is intended to bring shame to them for how they have treated him in all that they have done. So God's goodness puts Israel's faithlessness into stark contrast. I think that's such a powerful thing. God, using that contrast to convict the hearts of his people. I think that's a pattern that you'll see repeatedly 
in the way the Lord disciplines His children. And I've seen it in my own life. I think God often does His best conviction of us by blessing us beyond measure, even in the face of our sin. So that we see Him come to our side in a blessed way when we were anticipating judgment or retribution. And in that moment, you're just shocked by the goodness of God. And the awesomeness of the goodness of God can be such a humbling moment that it propels you into greater obedience. You know, if you've ever had a parent kind of do that to you when you expected the worst and they showed you grace you didn't expect, it it makes you feel almost worse for not doing the right thing. You kind of were ready to be punished for it, and then it kind of felt like an even deal. And then they do the nice thing, and you're like, I don't even know what to do with that. That's the point here. He says, to shame Israel for their past by giving them a preview of the glory that God has prepared for them anyway. So if God is going to get that outcome from this preview, the preview has to be very specific. If I don't give you the details of the preview sufficiently that you can really imagine all that's coming, you're not going to get the point of God is really doing something wonderful. So we're getting a full accounting here. Now, having said that, if you were to try to compare what you get in this next couple of chapters with what you have in the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law goes on for books. Here we're getting a couple of chapters. What that seems to suggest, at least to me, is that God has not provided the full law in this book. More of that will be given later. And I think that makes sense given its purpose. His purpose was not that they would initiate doing this system now. The thought was, you'll know enough about it that you'd be ashamed of what you've done. And so this would suggest to us this is a bit of a sample, okay? That there would be more detail. For that same reason, we're not going to study this at that level of exhaustion, okay? We're going to hit the main points. Let's go to the first of that, verse 12. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. And these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit, and the width a cubit, and its border on its edge is round, about one span, and this span should be the height of the base of the altar. Now what I'm going to do is, this is just like we saw last week, right? Lots of spans and cubits and hair breadths, and you just don't even know what you're looking at. All right, from the base on the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits, and the width one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits, and the width one cubit. The altar hearth shall be four cubits, and from the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be 12 cubits long by 12 wide, square in its four sides. The ledge shall be 14 cubits long by 14 wide in its four sides. The border around it shall be a half cubit, and its base shall be a cubit round it about, and its steps shall face the east. Okay? So this is the center of life in the mountain and the center of life in the sacrificial system, the altar. Now let's get some terminology clear. Altars are not tables where you put candles in a church. Right? Altars are always a place of sacrifice. It's its only purpose for existence, is to put a dead animal up there and spill its blood. That's the only reason you have an altar. All right? It's a place where innocent blood is spilled. Therefore, in churches today, we do not have altars. Period. At most, we have a table that we're mistakenly calling an altar. But unless you've been killing animals and spilling blood, you don't have an altar. Of course, nor should we be doing that. But that's an important distinction because I think terminology starts to matter when you, have an, when you get into this area of study, when you get into the study of sacrificial systems in the millennial kingdom again. Okay? So there is an altar there because there is sacrifice there. There's no altar now because Christ has done the one and only sacrifice for this period of history. We don't need a physical sacrifice because he doesn't dwell in a physical temple. We talked about that. All right. So the altar has that terrace design. The, the, the total height there is about 16 feet. 
And the altar itself is another eight feet. The stairs probably go to the very top of the altar. You stand on the altar. You don't. It's not like a table that's up to here. You're standing on it, and you're killing the animals on top of it. You have to be able to take the animal up to it. All right. After he builds it, he prepares it for use. Verse 18, he said to me, Son of man, this is a long section, we'll read to 27. He said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built, to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. You shall give to the Levitical priests, who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. You shall take some of its blood and put it on its four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border around it, and thus you shall cleanse it and make it atonement for it. You shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. On the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish and a ram without blemish from the flock. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall throw salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall prepare daily a goat for a sin offering. Also a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, so they shall consecrate it. When they have completed the days, it shall be on the eighth day and onward. The priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. All right, here again, if you knew in detail how the Mosaic Law was carried out, you'll notice there were numbers of differences all the way through. But those differences aren't what we're going to spend our time on. Uh, the issue here is that there is sin, so there will be sacrifice. And the ritual here is different, but consistent in some respects to what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant. Here are the differences in a summary for just this section. You know, I don't find this to be terribly important to you, I'm sure. It's more just to, to give you an example to illustrate that there's just this little variation. I, my wife and I, in, ta- in talking about this, we know that if you go through the mosaic system with a fine-tooth comb, you can find meaning in many of the, the detail, and people have done that, and it's very helpful sometimes. As I said to you one time, I think last week, no one's probably done that on the kingdom one yet. And until that's done, it's not necessarily clear what those differences equate to, but it would be an interesting study, wouldn't it? All right, next, chapter 44, just to start it. The angel takes Ezekiel back to the east gate where the glory entered, and there's something really interesting here. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back by way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces the east, and the gate was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince. To eat bread before the Lord, he shall enter by way of the porch of the gate, and he shall go out by the same way. All right, what just happened there? Well, you have an east gate again. This is the same gate we've been talking about, right? It's been shut, all right? This is the east wall of today's Jerusalem, today's old city walls, right? So um, not the building we're talking about in Ezekiel's vision, obviously, but I'm just using it as a comparison. Um, now some people look at that and they go, well, that's the gate the Lord walked in the week before he died. That's not the gate he walked in. Now, those walls were built in the 16th century by Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire. On top of walls that had been there before, on top of walls that had been there before, on top of the walls Jesus had walked through. Okay, The walls that he walked through are about 10 feet, 20, 15 feet underground. So uh, you're not seeing anything relevant to what Christ did. But it's in the same general location. It's called the Beautiful Gate. And that gate was walled up originally by the Crusaders. 
So, not that wall, that's Solomon's, Suleiman's wall, but in about the 11th century, another wall in the same location was walled up by crusaders, and they did it largely on the basis of what you read already in Acts, and in Zechariah, and here in Ezekiel. They said, well, if the Lord doesn't want anyone to walk through that gate after he walks through it, we should wall it up and then not let anybody else through it until he comes back in his second coming. Later, when Suleiman built his walls, he wanted it open. And then later he decided to close it because he didn't want the uh, Jews, who kept thinking their Messiah would come through that gate, to feel any comfort that it might actually happen. So the Arabs put a graveyard here because Jews never walk across graves, and they walled it up. So it's been walled and unwalled and all the various reasons. Um, Here you see in the millennial time, it will be walled up or it will be shut. The doors will be shut and God himself says it. He wants it shut. All right. And then it said that after the doors were shut, it said there would be a man called the prince who would occupy the gate, who would sit there and eat bread. Now you remember from past studies probably that gates in in the ancient times are places of official business in the wall. And a magistrate or another official would sit in the gate, it was said to be. And then in that place, they'd meet with people to do business for the purpose of the city. And so it will be in that day. The prince of Israel will sit in the gate. Though the outer door is shut, the inner door is open. And so visitors will have to enter the temple court through either the north or the south gates, which are the other two, make their way across the outer court and reach this east gate and meet with the prince in the gate on the east. And then that's where he goes every day for business. So who's who is the prince? Well, we learned back in Ezekiel 34 who the prince was. Ezekiel 34:22. He says God says I deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another and then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will feed them, and he will feed them himself, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that's Prince David in his lunchbox, walking to work, to sit in the gate for his day of work, where he will judge over the people of Israel. Resurrected as you and I will be, and back in his old job. Though he's called prince this time, because, of course, Jesus is king. And Jesus sits on the throne. David doesn't have a throne. There's no throne. He's got a corner office in the, in the temple. It's not a bad... just doesn't have a window. last thing I was going to do tonight, and it's, 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 uh, we're just on time, so we'll get a few more minutes and we'll be done, but uh, I wanted to take this moment to talk about government generally, and then we'll end on that. We'll come back next week on something that I think you'll find interesting as well. But under David, the Bible says there is a government for the nation of Israel, and there'll be another government of sorts for the Gentiles. So under David, there'll be 12 apostles each of them ruling over one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus says that in Matthew nineteen twenty seven. He said, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, meaning in the resurrection, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, this time, he says, You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, drudging the twelve tribes of Israel. So in that context, throne would reference a, a place of judgment, like a bema seat. Okay? And so he says, you're going to judge the twelve tribes. To judge a tribe was equivalent, like in the time of judges, to be the judge would mean to be the ruler. So he will rule, he will judge, he will oversee the twelve apostles. Now we've 
think we talked in here once before about who the twelfth one is, because everyone gets wrapped up on that. But the Bible is very clear on who the twelfth one is, and there's no ambiguity and no no dissent in the Bible about that. It's Matthias. Yeah, it's the one who's selected in chapter 1 of Acts. Very clearly, that's when it happened, that's when it's said to happen, and it was done. So he was he is the replacement. He, he will be one of the twelve who rule over the tribes. Um, now, if you didn't notice, that reference also gives us something that takes us back to that dilemma that I never could address, never could fix for us, and I still can't. The dilemma about whether or not Israel is fully glorified or has natural human beings. And if you don't know the thing I'm talking about, it might take too long to remind you, but the, the core issue is, did all of Israel come into the kingdom glorified, or are they like Gentiles in that there are some glorified and then some natural, unglorified believers? This passage would seem to suggest there may be some natural citizens who need judging within Israel, within the 12 tribes. Or you could say that maybe it's only in reference to the fact that there are Gentile sojourners living amongst them in their tribal communities, and they need judging in that respect. So, hard to know. What about us? We're not Jews, and most of us, I'm assuming. So where are we going to be? Well, the Bible says that the church saints will also be part of a government. Though, because we know that the 12 tribes are ruled by the apostles, it might stand to reason that we would be ruling over Gentile nations. And several passages suggest that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The world there would be a reference to the nations. He said, If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more than matters of this life? So that's a, a reference to our future role as judges of the world. And then in Revelation 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in that first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. A reference to our jobs of, of reigning. So anyone who participates in the first resurrection will reign. Okay? So here's an overview now, this is out of my Revelation study, and these are lots of references you don't need to worry about now. They come out of that study. But the big picture is what matters. You have Christ at the top. Lots of verses tell us he's the king. You have Jews led by Prince David, the apostles, and then the tribes will be in their land. We'll actually look at that here in chapter 45 of Ezekiel. And then over here, we only know a few things about our rule. We rule, and there is some reference in Isaiah to Gentile nations having Gentile rulers. So... Time does not allow me to do this, although I wanted to try to get to it tonight, but it's on the web. If you're saying, well, what's my place going to be in Christ's government? There's a lot to say about that in the New Testament, how God will make those assignments. And uh, we may start there next time as a way of kind of using some of the time, uh, because I think what we'll do otherwise might be a bit dry. So we'll use that as part of next week. So next week when we come back, we're going to look at the uh, parables of the mina and the talents from Matthew and Luke and how they both talk to two sides of the kingdom reward system that leads you into these roles. Okay, And uh, there's some interesting things there that I think are worth taking a few minutes on. It's a, a direct comparison to what we're studying here, the kingdom government. Next time then we'll come back in and we'll look at where the tribes sit in the land, how they're apportioned to their parts of the land, how the land of Israel be divided up, and more about the, the system of priesthood. Right, and then we'll finish up in the book, probably then next week and maybe one more, like I said. All right? Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, thank you for getting us excited, Lord, for what's coming. And just seeing it and, and beginning to imagine ourselves there, Father, how it starts to get us ready for it, as you intended. And for your people Israel and for even us, Father, it's also a reminder that even as we disappoint ourselves and you, though our sins have been removed from us, 
as far as the east is from the west. Nonetheless, Father, we, we sometimes experience that feeling of being less than we should be for your sake. And yet we know, Father, you turn around and you bless us anyway, merely out of your love and grace and mercy and how that does call us back to you. And we thank you for that, Father. And we ask you, Father, for another night or two of good study to finish this book as we started it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.